everyone, it's Sky, and this is episode two of 420 Unsolved. Hi, I'm Johnny Cash. I'm just <laughs> kidding, I'm Miles. <laughs> so thanks for joining us again. This week, we're going to be talking about The Sims Family Murder. Ooh, computer game murder. No, not the computer game. <laughs> Definitely not the computer game. I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of people kill their characters in The Sims, though. So... I guess I'm going to talk a little bit about it before we go smoke. The Sims family murder, it kind of it's kind of self-explanatory. I mean, it, it's a family murder. <laughs> Multiple people within this family was was murdered and to this day it's still unsolved. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's a sad fucked up case that I can say. All right, I'm ready. All right. Well, we'll be right back after um we obviously partake in some smoking. Four Twenty Unsolved is an independent podcast. The opening and closing music is called No Flower by Gluten. If you like the show, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Four Twenty Unsolved. Please smoke responsibly. Damn. And we are back. I totally forgot to talk about what we were smoking today. We smoked uh, some ambulance. I kind of feel like I need to be in one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sativa dominant, and I was hoping it would let us talk a little bit more during this segment, I guess. Uh, but it really just knocks you back a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So like I said, we're going to be talking about the Sims family murder. So that's the who today. The where is Tallahassee, Florida. I like Florida. Yeah. Lots of old people. <laughs> That's where a lot of retired people go, huh? And then it is 1966. All right. So on Saturday, October 22nd, 1966, 17-year-old Virginia Sim was babysitting for a family that went to the local Florida State football game. And when the, adult, when the adults came back, Virginia left to go back home, which was located in Muriel Court residential area. So this was like a big place, residential area that people lived. Yeah. When she entered her home, which was 11.15 p.m., she could hear the television going, but she could not find any members of her family. She couldn't find her sisters, her mom, her dad, nobody, but she... Okay, so she was babysitting some other people's kids. Yeah. And then when she came home is when she was finally, right? Yeah. Okay. So she wasn't at home. And then, so she just walked around the home, like, looking to see if she could find anybody. And then she thought to maybe look into her bedroom, her parents' bedroom. And that's when she found her father, Robert Sims, age 42. Her mother, Helen Sims, age 34. And her sister, Joy Sims, age 12. They were laying in their blood, appearing to be dead. Um, her dad, Robert, was bound on top of the bed, blindfolded, and he had been shot once in his head. 
And then Helen was laying out on the bedroom floor, and she had also been bound and blindfolded, and she had been shot twice in the head and once in the leg. Right next to Helen, diagonally, was her little sister Joy, and she had been shot once in the head and was stabbed six times in her abdomen. Abdomen. I can't say that word. Later, investigators thought it seemed like she had been stabbed with a large hunting knife or maybe a butcher's knife. And then Robert and Helen were bound together, like their arms and their legs were bound together by household items like socks, neckties, lingerie, and all that stuff. And the police figured out that they were shot with a thirty-eight caliber handgun. So it's a lot. Yeah. And it's a lot because I think Joy, it seems like, was the main victim in this. Because she was, she was stabbed multiple times, whereas her parents were just shot. Do you, you get what I mean? Yeah. So when Virginia found her family, her parents were actually still alive. And Virginia called the Beavis Funeral Home for an ambulance. And she was quoted to have said, something terrible has happened, please come. So Russell Beavis um, rushed to the home, and he also brought his son, Rocky Beavis, who was 16 at the age. He was 16 at the time. Once Russell got there, Robert had passed away. But Helen was still alive, and then they were able to transport her to the hospital. But she lost her life nine days later on October 31st, Halloween. And investigators realized Joy must have been killed instantly due to her her wounds. I guess, like, the weird thing for me was that she didn't call 911 when she found her family. Wait, who'd she call? She called this funeral home. How old was she? She was 17. Okay, that's weird. She should have called the police. (laughs) But when I was doing my research, I, I also found that in that area, it was a really normal custom to call the funeral home first. So that they they would be able to transport them to the hospital, I guess. But that was, I guess, it was normal in that time. Yeah, it's fucked up. Mm. So when the police arrived, they were able to rule out robbery almost automatically. They saw that there was no forced entry into the home. And that no items were stolen or taken. um, Despite the fact that there was a really nice expensive coin collection in the bedroom in one of the drawers. So then the police searched the entire surrounding area of the home looking for clues or anything to lead to something. And at one point they also drained a nearby pond to see if they could find the murder weapons. They were unable to find anything. And then also... Later on in the investigation, when they were interviewing people, a neighbor came forward and reported they heard screams around 10.45 p.m. that night. And remember, Virginia didn't get home until 11.15. This neighbor said that she didn't come forward and report the screams because she thought it was children just playing at night. The Sims family was very admired in the community. They were really well known. Robert, the dad, he was the director of data processing for the Florida Department of Education. And then Helen was the secretary at First Baptist Church of Tallahassee. So a really well-known church. And then, so people just really couldn't understand why this family was attacked and just brutally murdered. Because the community 
didn't understand, and the police were unable to find any suspects pretty much automatically, the community was really, really scared that there was still a killer on the loose. And with it being so close to Halloween and the trick-or-treating, they ended up just canceling trick-or-treating altogether. Probably a smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. Thinking on the suspects list, the police did have a few ideas, but it was really hard to pin it on somebody or to figure out who could have done it. At one point in the investigation, police were actually looking into the library at, like, the local Tallahassee library to see who checked out books, like, In Cold Blood. Alright. So they just didn't have an idea of who could have done this, and they're just using really silly tactics to find ideas. <laughs> also, what made it really hard for them to create a list of suspects was that the murder fell on a day where there was a university football game going on. And then also the North Florida Fair. The police explained that because of these both events, this caused a mass rise of strangers visiting the town to go to both of these events. And because of this, it put a lot of people in the area that, that might not usually be there and a lot more of a population to look at for suspects. I see. Probably thousands of people. Yeah, it was a lot, I'm assuming. So I've never really been down there to a football game. Or a fair. Yeah, a fair and a football game. I'd say probably have a lot of people. Yeah. I'm hungry. I'm pretty hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Yeah. Do I get some snacks? And then we'll come back and talk about the suspects. How's that sound? Yeah. And we are back. We had to go get some chips and snacks. So... Thanks for the break. I believe we were at the suspects list. The One of the first ones that came up was the pastor. The police called in Helen's former boss, uh, Pastor Cecil Albert Roberts, or they called him CA for questioning, because just prior to the murder, Helen had quit her job at the church. And then... Pastor Roberts was also known to be a ladies' man in the community. So many within the church and also Tallahassee, they kind of thought this pastor was having an affair with Helen. Could see that. Yeah. I think if the rumors are true, it could have probably. So, so Pastor Roberts actually had an alibi. He was at the local Florida State University football game because he was their team chaplain. And he appeared in the film coverage of the football game that night. So he was clearly seen in this coverage multiple times. And then the police were able to actually sit down and account for all the time during like the murder and while he was at the football game. And they were able to conclude that there was no possible way he could have left the football game to go commit this crime. Who? The pastor. Oh, uh, yeah. So he ended up getting crossed out from the suspects list. Okay. Then, in 1980, the county sheriff at the time reopened the case because he got a tip that a local death row convict uh, in a different state had ties and lived in Florida prior, and that he also knew the Sims family. The reason why the sheriff took this so seriously was that the murder that the convict convicted was very similar that he felt to the Sims family murder. 
So I went in and they never did, from what I could do my research on, they, they never released his name. But I dug a little further and I was able to actually like find a documentary on this murder. It was really informative and it explained that this convict that they were possibly talking about was a man named Thomas Fulgen. He actually lived two blocks from the home when he was 16, when he was 16 during 1966 when these murders happened. So he was just a couple blocks away from the home. And what he was convicted for the death row for was that at age 29, he brutally murdered his girlfriend in Atlanta. And what he did was that he cut her hands off and disemboweled her. And then the police, when they caught him, he had a jar with a human liver in it. And when the police asked him why did he have that and why he did this, he explained that he had to do it because he thought Satan would be chained to the world for a thousand years and he'd be unable to wreak, like, wreak havoc. So when the police got this tip and the sheriff reopened the case to look at Thomas, they looked into where he was at that night because he does live only a couple, he did at the time only live a couple of blocks away and he was 16 and they didn't know if he possibly did commit it, so they, they took it to look into. But then he, it turns out he had an actual alibi. He was at a local party during the football game. Um, many of his peers saw him drinking and engaging at this party, so he wasn't anywhere near the home at the time. Then there is this man named Robert Howells. In December of 1966, so the same year, the Sims murders, but just a couple months later, Robert Howes marries a woman, Peggy Howes. The day after their wedding, they drove down to Alligator Point in Florida, and while they're driving, Robert tells his new wife, I murdered the Sims family. So it's a big shock to her, and she's freaking out. And while they're driving... Robert explains how he killed them, and he said that he got into an argument with Helen at the grocery store, and he was so angry that he followed her home to find out where she lived, and then she, he went back that night and killed them. He said that he first killed, he said that he first killed Joy, and then he killed Helen, and then he killed Mr. Sims, so Robert Sims. The police only know this because Peggy later wrote a letter and one of her family members was going through multiple of the family's documents and they found this letter. And so they called it to the police and Peggy did come in and talk about it. And in this letter, Peggy wrote explaining that her husband, Robert, confessed to her. And in the letter, Peggy said that she said that he was very violent. He beat her frequently and he also would threaten to hurt or kill her biological children. So his stepchildren. When Peggy was approached by the police, she did agree to help them try to get a confession. And so the police then bugged her home. They gave her a wire and they planned out the whole event to get him to try to confess to her so they would have it on tape because they're really trying to solve this crime at this point. But Robert was actually tipped off by his own daughter at that time. So this didn't happen. They didn't get anything. Peggy was so convinced, though, that her husband must have done these murders because he admitted to them to her that she took his thirty-two caliber gun to the police station to give to evidence. But it's the wrong gun because the police were able to figure out that it was a thirty-eight caliber that was used to shoot the family. So 
at this point, the police are like, they couldn't get a confession. Peggy couldn't bring in the right gun. So there's there's nothing. But she keeps saying that he had to have killed this, this family. So then Robert agrees to just come in and do a polygraph. And then he passes the polygraph. And then the police took his fingerprints and they looked at the crime scene and none of his fingerprints fit any at the scene. So they had to let him go. Like, they had nothing on this dude. So that was one of the other suspects that they had. The next people up on the suspect list was a young hetero couple. And at the time of the murders, the male was 20 years old and the female was 19 years old. Police would not release the couple's name because they didn't have anything to... They didn't have anything to actually charge them for this crime or murder. So they never said what their names were. But I dug a little deep and I was able to figure it out. And it is the couple that they are talking about is Mary Charles LaJoy. But she also goes by Charlie. And then the male was Vernon Fox Jr. This is the couple that the lead detective for many years stated that he fully believed this couple killed the family. And here's why. The couple actually lived a street right behind the Sims home. So if you're looking at a map of the city, the Sims home is right basically above where Vernon lived. Their property touched the corners. And there was no fences. There was nothing blocking the houses from each other. So they were just very close. So he could have gotten in and out. Mary lived just a couple houses down the block from Vernon. So she could have just easily gone to Vernon's house. And Mary, when she was younger, was a little weird because she was known to have a fascination with the dead in funeral homes. And she had also broken into funeral homes multiple times and stolen items from the dead. So she's a little weird. It's kind of creepy. It's not how I would want to spend a... Friday night when I'm 19. True that. There was also gossip that Vernon had attempted to molest Joy. And a lot of this gossip stemmed from the fact that Vernon had been seen a few days prior looking into the window of Joy, trying to peep in on her. So a lot of these rumors started to spread that Vernon was kind of a creep. Because it's very creepy. So Mary actually moved back to Tallahassee in 1987. And during that time, she wanted to talk to the police about the Sims murders. In the documentary that I, I watched, I actually got to see the tapes that they did when, when they were recording her interview with the police. And not all of it, just the clips that they put in the documentary. And she was so close to confessing a lot. She was like, supposedly, if I had gone into the Sims home, or, or what if Vernon had gone in and killed them? Things like that. So it was really weird, but she never actually confessed to the murders, never actually confessed that they were there or Vernon had went into the home or anything. But she really did say that she felt multiple times, because Vernon was looking into Joy's bedroom window, that she felt like they could she could be losing her only friend at the time because people saw him and they were gonna tell on him. So the day of the murder, Mary and Vernon actually went to the drive-in movies. And then the ticket man at the movies reported that he saw them leave after the first movie. But when they were investigated, they told police that they stayed for at least two to three movies. So they already lied. And then they reported to the police that they left the movies and went to a local lover's lane and they had sex. Yeah. 
So that was their alibi for that night. But when Mary came back, she told the police a completely different story that she thought they were going to stay there at the movies for at least two to three night, um, two to three movies. But they actually left after the first one and that they did not go to a lover's lane because they at that time weren't even sexually active with one another. That happened later in their relationship. When the police brought Vernon back in, his story also kind of changed. He said instead of instead of leaving the lover's lane and going home, they originally said that they were going to stop and get a Coke, but they didn't have enough gas, so they just went straight home. But when the police brought him back in, he said that after the lover's lane incident, after they had sex, he left and drove them to a lake. So he didn't even mention that they went straight home or anything. He, he said that they went to a lake this time. So... Mary didn't confess to anything. She just kept saying a lot of what ifs. What if we did this? What if he did that? Supposedly if this happened, those types of things. So they were never able to actually get any information. He sounds like he did it. Did they not investigate it any further? Who, Vernon? Yeah. No, like I said, they, they, they brought him in later on when after Mary came forward and was talking about how they possibly could have done it. But he never admitted to anything, and he just, they don't have any positive proof that he was there. This is, like, the 80s, right? Like, wasn't that back when, like, cops were, like... It was the know, 60s. 60s. That was back when, like, cops were, like, bashing your fucking heads in on the, on the tables in the interrogation rooms, right? Like, come on now. But, oh, that's a good point, because a lot of people ex think that the cops could have figured this out. But they were doing really bad police work back then. Kind of like you said, they were bashing their heads on the table. I don't think that's good police work. Yeah, well, they should have bashed this guy's head a couple more times. Oh, stop! Obviously, they weren't doing enough, because this just seems very obvious, right? Like, it, like, man, come on. At least could have took him to trial. They didn't have anything to charge him with. That's the issue. So... People thought they had they were doing such bad police work because one of the biggest issues with this one was that when they were trying to investigate the crime scene, they had so many people come. Between on and off duty authorities, they kind of figured there was over a thousand people that walked through this home and they didn't secure it good enough. Because the funeral home guy that came, you know, when Virginia called 911, Mr. Beavis, Mr. Bevis. Bevis, yeah. Mr. Beavis, he quoted two reporters that when the police came, they went in and made coffee. It was probably the most textbooked what you shouldn't do. They walked into this home and made coffee. Jesus. I think, I think the couple did it. Oh yeah, definitely. And one of the reasons why I think it is mainly because this dude is a creep. Yeah. He's looking into some children's window. And Joy was the primary victim in this case. She was stabbed so many different times. And considering the fact that he was seen creeping in her window makes me think he must have done something to her later on. Yeah. And this girl was also just weird. But she let him do it. And yep. was like going to protect him, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to blame the girl that... Broke into a funeral home and was stealing objects from dead people. And blame the guy that was stalking the girl. I mean, come on now. He's the only notable person that had 
anything weird connection with the family like that. He lived right there. Tied him up with like laundry and socks and stuff. Yeah, it was local. It was like their personal items. So, and police also said that they figured that it couldn't have been done by just one person because there's so many of them. They didn't think the culprit could have held the whole family at gunpoint and tied them all together at the same time. Well, what if he shot him first and then tied them up real fast? Oh, you're right. What if he just, just killed them all before he even, like, made the scene? You're right. Yeah. I didn't even look up, like, about their blood splatter or anything. I don't know if he did kill them and then just stage them. You're right. I didn't even think of that. I was thinking the culprit would have held a gun and then the other culprit would have tied them up while they were holding the gun on them. Well, as once great OJ said, if I did it and I was by myself, this is like the only possible thing to do. Like if you if your end goal is to kill the three family members anyways, why would you goof around? Why wouldn't you just do it? If your end goal is their death anyways, you know. What did OJ say? If I did it. Oh. In hopes of cracking this unsolved murder, the community is hoping that new technology in regards to DNA testing, looking at skin underneath the victim's fingernails, things like that, they're hoping to crack the case a little bit more and possibly find more leads to finding a culprit. We hope they do. Yeah. So that's that's the tragic Sims family murder in Tallahassee, Florida. That's so odd. Yeah. I feel like we had more information about a case from the 30s than we you know, just did. I feel like there was more information on that than we had on this. Like, the cops back then, like, everyone seemed to have a better idea what happened then than what happened now. Like, at least there was, like, people, and, like, people came forward. But this one's just, like, it's like a lot of people just dropped the fucking ball. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of it, you have to think that... Back in this time period, they didn't think things like this would happen. There's literally a quote when I was looking at the research of this case. Someone said that the day that the Sims family murder happened, that was the day that Tallahassee lost its innocence. Yeah. So back then, they didn't think things like this could happen. So they didn't pay attention to anything. Like, remember that neighbor, she actually said she didn't report the screams that she heard that night because she thought it was children playing. I suppose it's I understand what happened, but I still think that's pretty. I don't know. I guess now that you got like books and movies, people know bad shit happens to good people. Yeah, all the time, every day. Yeah. Well. So I guess that's it for this week. That's it. Yeah. Oh. Um, I wish I maybe I need to watch this documentary. Oh, yeah, the documentary. You can find it online. It's called 641 Muriel Court, because that's the family home. That was their address. And it was done by a man named Kyle Jones. It's only about an hour long. And it's really interesting. They interview a whole bunch of people for this case, um, like multiple investigators and people that ha knew about it and knew the people. And they actually speak with Joy and her other sister that's still alive to this day. And they also interview Vernon, so this is where you can see the tapes of Mary coming in and speaking with the cops, and then Vernon speaking. So, I would go check out the documentary, it's actually pretty cool. I liked it, anyways. Sorry for not talking much, I'm pretty cooked. This ambulance has me in a stretcher. <laughs> that, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs>
So this past week, I've been really working on making sure the podcast is up on a lot of different places to listen to. We're up on Spotify, iTunes, oh, Google Play, Stitcher, and I'm trying to get a few other places. I think I'm thinking of everything. I don't know right now. I'd have to look. But we're up on a different lot of places. So please like, comment, subscribe, follow, whatever it is on wherever you're listening. Please follow our Instagram and our Twitter it's at 420unsolved. 420unsolved. It's 420 all the time. <laughs> so follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 420unsolved. I try to post a lot of updates and just pictures and memes throughout the week. I try to stay high throughout the week. <laughs> Eventually we're going to do an intro video just to introduce ourselves to everyone and so if you have any questions you want to ask us, comment some Q&As. Yeah? Yeah, bud. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Stay cool, you guys. Disclaimer to all those, we do live in a state where marijuana is both medically and recreationally legal. We do not endorse the underage use in recreational and medically legal states, and we do not endorse the illegal use in non-legal states. Smoke responsibly.